we're going to make our way to 2 Corinthians, and we'll be in the ninth chapter as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. As you guys head that direction, as we arrive in chapter 9, we are essentially a smack dab in the middle of a two-part message that Paul is giving about giving. And so uh, here's the good news. You guys are a lot like uh, Bon Jovi. You're halfway there, right? We're living on a prayer. We're about all the way through Paul's message here on uh, giving. As you make your way that direction, let me just remind you that in chapter 8 where Paul started this, the, the topic of giving was really surrounding uh, Paul's encouragement to the church to make a donation, to put a, a, a gift together for the church back in Jerusalem. That the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, had fallen upon hard times. It was difficulty there in the church. It was a famine in the land. And so Paul's desire was for them to, to rally together all the churches that he had planted, and he was to go around and, and take up this collection to bring it back to Jerusalem to present to them to be this blessing for them. And as Paul gets this chance to encourage these churches to do so, he wasn't taking up an offering for himself. He was taking up an offering for others. But no doubt what he was hoping to have take place is it wasn't just about money. This was also about connectivity. That by the Spirit, we see unity happen within the church. And yet what existed in the church in that day was there was this divide between Jew and Gentile. There was this deep distrust, this deep Dislike, and it went all the way back to their many of their Jewish upbringings, where they would view the Gentiles as as dogs. That's actually what they called them, and they didn't mean a little cute uh, lap dog puppy, but they meant a deep down dirty junkyard dog, like one of those dogs. This is how they viewed uh, the Gentiles as a people group, and so the the church, the Gentile church, really we see it begin to take shape in Acts chapter ten, as the apostle Peter was. There on a rooftop, he has this vision come to him that the Lord gives him. And what he sees is a, a sheet, a sail come down out of the sky. And there on the, the sail, on this uh, huge blanket, if you will, are all these different animals, many of which were previously considered unclean by the law. And so the law had said to the Jewish people, you can't eat these things, things like pigs, swine. And so as we see the this sheet or blanket come down, what we find is, is scripturally this is the first time we can take note of pigs in a blanket. And so as, as Peter sees pigs in a blanket come down out of the sky, he is told by this voice, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And so Peter knows this is the voice of the Lord. And yet look at his response. Not so, Lord. Which is actually a contradiction of terms. If he is your Lord, you do not get to tell him uh, not so. And so Peter says, not so because nothing unclean or common has ever crossed his lips. He was a good Jewish boy is what he's saying. And then in verse 15, the voice spoke to him and said a second time, "God has what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And so the Lord makes it very clear that this had nothing to do with food whatsoever. This was all to do with this relationship with the Gentiles. Because just a few minutes later, there was a knock at the door and Peter was going to get an opportunity to go to a Roman household and actually lead people to Jesus and see them baptized. And the Gentile church would take off from that point forward. And so from that point on, we see this rise of the, the Gentile church as the, the gospel goes forth to them, and yet there was still this 
issue between the two, a misunderstanding. And what Paul's hoping with this gift, as it goes back to Jerusalem, is that we would see unity. It would be a chance for them to be joined together. And so the Corinthians, they were initially excited about this. Paul brings this idea up in his first letter to them. They were excited, like, yeah, let's do it. And yet there's an issue. Um, They didn't actually do anything. They didn't actually collect anything at all. Like we get sometimes where we get this stirring in our heart. We go, yeah, let's go for it. And then time passes. We get busy. Eh, I don't really have time for that, Lord. And so this is what happened to the Corinthians. They had taken up uh, no offering. And it had been a year now as Paul is writing his second letter to them. So we pick up in chapter 9. Verse 1, with this in mind, Paul says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness. Now Paul starts with what I call in Scripture a little sanctified sarcasm. I am often sarcastic. My wife tells me it's rarely sanctified. But in this spot, Paul's very godly. So he gives him a little sanctified sarcasm. He says, it's superfluous for me to ask this. In other words, there's no need for me to even write to you because you were so willing to take up this gift all on your own. And so Paul's laying it on a little thick, but the reality was they were initially excited about this gift. Yes, Paul brought it to them, but they were rallying behind them, ready to go, ready to give. So verse 2, we continue. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. And so this area where Paul is writing from is Macedonia. He's writing this letter from Philippi. And as he's there in uh, Philippi, he's speaking to them about those in Achaia. Now you might remember from last week that Macedonia is this mountainous farming area of northern Greece. This is essentially your Grecian rednecks. And so they didn't have the money. They didn't. They weren't living on the beach, all tan and good looking. Uh, those people lived down in Achaia. Those were those folks that were in the south, and they had the they had the redneck Riviera down there that sometimes we like to go to. And so, as Paul is encouraging them, he he says to the Macedonians, "Boy, wait till you see those from Achaia give. I mean, they really know how to lay it on. I mean, they they have a giving heart. They they do so well to come alongside us. And so the Macedonians were actually motivated by this. They were excited, not in a manner of a competition, but in a way to be able to partner together with the Corinthians. They were finding this as a way of inspiration. We're going to come alongside them. We're going to give a whopper of a gift to those in Jerusalem. And those in Macedonia, man, they showed up. We looked at that last week. They gave out of a place of actually poverty. They weren't super wealthy, yet they gave to the point where it hurt. And so Paul is writing to them from Macedonia, but he's getting ready to make a trip down to Achaia. And he says here in verse 3, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this uh, confident boasting. So what Paul's saying is, I'm going to send a couple guys, Titus, and what we saw in chapter 8, a man who's praises in the gospel. I mean, what a great testimony that guy had. These two were going to come down and they're going to take up this collection that was already on their heart from the previous year, the one that they were so excited about giving. Now what Paul's saying here in verse 3 and 4 is, imagine if they show up, these Macedonians come with me and y'all didn't take up any offering at all. I've just bragged and boasted on what great givers you guys are. It's going to be embarrassing for the both of us. 
And so Paul's trying to give them a little exhortation. He's trying to give them some encouragement. In fact, uh, he's doing what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. He's trying to stir up a little bit of love and a little bit of good works. He doesn't want them to be ashamed. And so he actually wants this to be a motivation. Often this is the case when momentum begins to happen, when people see good things happening in your life, they'll be motivated to do something good as well. And so Paul wants to see this kind of motivation and this momentum taking place. Now verse 5, he says, Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not a grudging obligation. What Paul doesn't want to happen is for the offering to be taken up while he's there. He wants the offering to be done ahead of time because he doesn't want people to think uh, ill of Paul that he just is coming for the money. Paul's thinking about all those TV televangelists that we turn them on and what I'm amazed by and I'm sickened by is that every time you turn on the channel, Jesus is about to declare chapter 11 bankruptcy. Your gift is the one brother that's going to put us over the top so we don't fold up and have to go home. Meanwhile, they've got a beautiful million dollar stage and lights and cameras. It doesn't look like Jesus is going broke, but to hear those guys tell it, uh, he certainly is. And so Paul wants to make perfectly clear, I'm not here to collect money. When I show up, I want this whole thing to be taken care of so nobody thinks it's just about Paul wanting money. He doesn't want to misrepresent God in this way. He doesn't want them to feel obligated like they have to give. And so this is what I wanted to to drive home, and I brought this up last week, is that when God puts something on our hearts, He also provides a way for that to happen. That uh, Philippians chapter 4 Verse 6 says that where we should actually go for any kind of a petition, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known, uh, not to people, but be made known to God. God's the one that can provide. He's the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And so he, he, what Paul is saying here is that where God guides, God provides. That's one of Pastor Chuck's favorite things that he would say is where God guides, God provides. And so we see this opportunity that where God has guided, His promise is to actually give provision in that area. Now, oftentimes we don't know or understand how He's going to provide. That's usually where the hang-up is, is that we can't clearly see it. And yet, in some most unique of ways, God has this ability to be able to provide when we never saw it coming. Now, a few months back, um, I had the opportunity to, to take a face step and uh, to do so uh, in a way that some in the world might view is is completely crazy. So I I notified uh, the company that I work for full-time, Rule King, that I'm going to be stepping down from my position effective January 1st to be full-time here at Woodlawn Chapel. And so in doing so, I can can put on the face and tell you that uh, there's no scariness. This is all faith. We're going for it. But the reality is in my flesh, uh, that's a scary thing to say. When you got six kids and and you look at them, you're like, how are we going to provide again, Lord? Like, what's this going to look like? And so uh, a couple months ago, as Angela and I were processing through this, we had the opportunity to go and help a lady from church. And on the way back from helping a lady from church, I did what dads do. Uh, I made dinner. I said, we're going to Monocles. That's how I made dinner. 
And so as a way to celebrate, we, we made our way down to the monocles. And, and what you have to know is that with a family of eight, um, it, it always costs a hundo. No matter where you take it, it's a Benjamin coming out of your pocket every single... It don't matter if it's Dairy Queen or the monocles or the Taco Bell. We can spend $100 somehow at Taco Bell. I didn't think that was possible. And so as we're sitting there eating and the kids are you know feasting, uh, in the back of my mind, I, I was wondering, a little bit of doubt crept up. Like, how am I going to be able to do this here in a few more months? Is this all going to end? Is this thing going to go away? Can can Dad not just, at the spur of the moment, not think about it and just go for it? And so as we were done with the meal, uh, Nick was on duty that day, and, and he came up, and, and uh, instead of bringing the check, he, he let me know, hey, I just want you to know somebody already took care of this. Like, what? And and he was quick to point out, like, it wasn't me. You know, I didn't do it. Um, but somebody just wanted us to know that they loved us and they cared for us. And they had no idea. They could have had no idea what was going on inside my head. And yet what I want to share with you is where God guides, God provides. It doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. And yet, here in the midst of his provision, what we see is a spiritual law being proved out. So in our world, we have these physical laws that that rule the natural space that we exist in. Uh, for example, electricity. Uh, I know that a guy named uh, uh, Coulomb, or Coulomb, however you say his name, he had all these laws of electricity and electromagnetism. I have no clue how any of them worked. Somehow, I think I cheated off the guy next to me. I graduated with a degree in engineering, but I don't know how none of that works. What I do know is if I put my finger into the electrical outlet, uh, something happens. It's a shocking experience. That, that electricity is carried through the wires. I know that if I plug something in, that it works. I know that if I flip a light switch, the lights come on. Which, by the way, could somebody turn the lights back on so we could see? Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Um, so I know, hang on, example time. There you go. You guys were looking for an example. Keep going. Look at that. Light switch flipped. Lights go on. Let there be, not that one on the end. We don't, those flicker. Go do that one. Yeah, there you go. Lights go on when the switch is flipped, you see. And so we don't have to understand everything there is about electricity to know that when the light switch is flipped, the lights come on. I can see the results without knowing every little nuance of how it works. And so similarly, there are spiritual laws that govern things that are supernatural. We don't have to know every little nuance to then be able to see their net effect and see their results. One of those Jesus mentions in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, where he says this. Luke 6, 38, Jesus speaking says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. He doesn't give all the explanation, all the whys, all the hows. This is a spiritual law that has supernatural ramifications. And he just says, if you trust me, if you do this, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to put it all over your shirt. This is how I look after I got done eating the monocles. I got the cheese and the marinade. I got it everywhere. This is what Jesus is saying. You're going to get it all over you. I'm going to give it back to you in a way that, that exceeds what you gave to me. This is his promise. Now he gives an example, Paul does of this in verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so to help us understand it, Paul gives a, a farming example. 
Now, I know very little about farming, and after we're done with this, you guys are going to know I know even less about farming. So every straighter right now is shaking their head like, don't talk about farming. You don't know. Hang on just a second. Give me a minute. Uh, what I know is that if you go out to farm a field and you decide uh, to not actually plant any seeds or to hold back, there is no possible way you can have a bumper crop. It doesn't work like that. You have to go out and plant the seeds if you expect to actually have any kind of a harvest whatsoever. And so this is a physical law, but it also connects us to the spiritual. And here are the spiritual laws of sowing and reaping that I do know a little something about. It goes like this. Um, you always reap the same kind that you sow. And so if I want to grow corn, but I plant tomatoes, I will not grow corn. I'm going to grow whatever the thing is that I plant. And in fact, what Paul would say to the church in Galatia is this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so whatever kind I sow is the kind I'm going to get back. And that's a, a wonderful promise. And also a terrifying one, too, if I'm busy sowing to my flesh. Now, that said, the second law goes like this. You always reap after you sow. You never go out and plant the field and it uh, pops up the next day. That's ludicrous. You, you plant in the spring and you harvest in the fall, at least around here. That's most of what we do. And so there's a season. There's a time frame that has to pass in order for us to have a harvest, and the same is true spiritually for us. What we plant today doesn't automatically pop up the next day. A time frame has to take place. And thirdly, you always reap more than you sow. And so what Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 is that for those who have planted on good soil, uh, the, the return is some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. There is always the promise of an increase. And so for us, as we plant to the uh, flesh, that is terrifying. Because uh, what the Lord says in Hosea is, you have sown to the wind, and you have reaped the whirlwind. And for me, in my life, I have sown to the wind uh, one too many times. And man, if I reaped the whirlwind at various times in my life. And so this is true of sowing and reaping spiritually. You always get back more than what you sowed. Now, as the Lord is speaking in the Old Testament about the idea of giving in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. This is what he says, another spiritual law. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. There are times where we want to put God to the test. I've even heard people very braggadociously say, I'm going to put God to the test on this. I would not test God. I wouldn't do it, except in this. It's the only time in Scripture where God says, test me on this. Try me in this area. And his promise is, see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there won't be room enough to receive it. You won't be able to take all the blessings that I'm going to pour back into your life. Now, he doesn't guarantee dollars, but he doesn't preclude it. He just says blessing. And so the Lord promises to give us a blessing. How it's going to work, I have no idea. I really don't. But just like with the physical laws that I don't fully understand, 
I know that they work. I have seen the net effect. I've seen the result of these things. It does work. We just have to simply trust him in it. Now, continuing verse 7, Paul says this, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Our heart position is important to God. In fact, we read this last week, but it's worth me at least going back and looking at quickly Mark chapter 12 as Jesus is there in the temple courts and He's there by the treasury. Notice with me, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. Jesus wasn't sitting in the treasury watching what people gave. He didn't really give a rip what people gave. He was paying attention to how they gave. The how is what was so imperative to him. Why? Because what Paul just says here is, God loves a cheerful giver. The kind of heart position that we are to have, the word cheerful there in the Greek is also the word hilarious. As we give back to God, by the way, it's already all His in the first place, He wants us to literally be able to laugh out loud. Ha ha! Or, if you grew up like me, uh, Saturday mornings were an important time. And you kids, you're not going to understand this. But it used to be back in the day, the only time you could catch the cartoons was Saturday mornings. There wasn't no DVR. There was no on-demand. You had to watch it Saturday morning if you wanted to catch what was going to happen. Now, the other thing that happened Saturday mornings on top of cartoons was wrestling. Not the WWE. I don't even know what that is. I'm talking about WWF wrestling. It would come on on Saturday mornings. And my favorite wrestler that I love to watch, I'm a little bit afraid to admit it, was the nature boy, Ric Flair. And he would get so excited in his promos that he would cut that eventually he would just style and profile and then, whoo! That's what I think of when I see this. That what God desires for us as we get the opportunity to partner with Him and give, we should be able to do a little nature boy dance and a little, whoo! Like that. We're so excited to be able to give to Jesus, the King of Kings. And by the way, you cannot woo without smiling. You can't woo and not smile. Try it. I dare you. Give it a little woo! And the smile breaks out on your face. And so this is what God desires for our heart position to be like. Now, if you contrast that to what it looks like to be stingy, I'm going to go back to Haggai. I know you guys spend a lot of time in Haggai. But in Haggai chapter 1, in this spot in Scripture, the nation of Israel has been in Babylon for 70 years. They've just gotten the opportunity to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem. 70 years they've been in captivity. A million plus people in captivity. Uh, 50,000 came back. But out of that 50,000 that came back and believed God at His promise that He would give them Jerusalem back, uh, they were sent back to rebuild the temple. But instead, as it happens with us, they decided maybe our house should go up first. We should really probably get ourselves a nice place to live first and then we'll work on the temple later. This is what the Lord says in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is what God says. Consider what you're doing. Think about this. 
you guys have been so stingy, is what he's telling these people in Haggai, that you've got everything you can need, and yet you feel like you're you're discontented all the time. You feel like you're poor, and this is what happens with stinginess. It's never enough. We're never content. There's always the next thing and the next toy and the next thing I, I must have. And so this, this stinginess rises up in our hearts. But what Paul wants to be clear about here in verse 7 is God desires us to not begrudge our gift, not feel like it's a necessity. It's a, it's a get-to, not a have-to. And so have you, have you ever been over to somebody's house to eat, and then as they're serving you food, they decide to offer you up seconds? And you, you get the opportunity, like, oh, yeah, load it back on here. And you take the seconds, but then as you're eating, they begin to grumble. You know, you hear something from the dad over in the corner, like, well, I was planning on eating that for lunch next week. Never seen people eat so much. How'd that make you feel? Didn't you want to just go, <laughs> spit it right back out on the plate? Like, it, I didn't ask for seconds. You offered them up. I'm just trying to be gracious and, and enjoy. And, and yet I wonder, how often does God feel like that? We're, we're we act like we want to give more. We act like we want to go over and above. And then we begin to grumble about it. Well, Lord, and I feel like so often God just says, you might as well keep it. I'll spit it right back out. I don't, I don't need for you to do these things. And so I think it's important to understand what Hebrews tells us is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has never one time changed. And so often we look at the Old Testament and all the laws and all the rules and we go, yeah, but God dictated what they had to do back here. And now you're telling us it's all about the heart. I want to turn with you to Exodus chapter 35. This is Moses now giving them an opportunity to give an offering for the tabernacle. And in verse 5, he says, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him Bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat's hair. And then if you skip ahead, verse 21. Then everyone who came whose heart was stirred and whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. God's approach to this has never changed. He was never after our checkbook. He didn't give a rip about that. He didn't need it. What he was after was our heart. What Jesus said in Matthew 6 was, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. God knew that our hearts were connected. And so he wasn't after deep pockets or big checks. He was always and still is and forever will be after our hearts. Now, back to verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I sit in meetings all the time where people talk about ROIs. What's the return going to be on this investment? I was in one this week, and I probably should have been paying attention. But instead, in my notebook, what I wrote down is, do I ever consider the spiritual ROI? Do I ever think about what is the spiritual return on my investment. Because what God says very clearly here is that uh, there is always an ROI with Him. There's always going to be a return spiritually on our investment with Him. Romans chapter 11, verse 35. This is what Paul would write there. There in Romans eleven thirty-five, 35, he says this, For, uh, or, 
who has given to him, and it shall not be repaid to him. Who's given to the Lord, and he not repaid? God is not going to be a debtor to any of us. In no way, no how is God going to owe us. He's going to make sure that he repays. So as we get the opportunity to give hilariously, and he promises right here in Scripture to give back to us generously, here's one of the spots I want to take you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6 is Paul's writing to his young protege. This one's highlighter worthy. If you're a person who likes the highlighter, he writes to Timothy and says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. That we have this desire to be wealthy, to have great gains. The the formula is right here. It's godliness with contentment. It's me being thankful with what God has given me, what he has entrusted to me, and then being godly in it. To to just simply serve the Lord, have a, a mind and a heart for the Lord. As my heart and mind are turned to him, and I'm content with what he's given me, it equals great gains. Verse 9, Paul says, As it is written, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's quoting there from Psalm 112. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Verse 11, While you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. And so, what we see is, um, imagine this, another quick example. Um, Let's say down south of town, you bought yourself a beautiful brand new farm, and then you decided to go to the bank, you borrow a little bit of money so you can go buy seed for this next year's harvest. Now, looking at your uh, P&L, looking at your profit and loss, you're like, wait a minute, we need to cut some expenses. So here's the spot we're going to cut expenses. We're just going to leave the seed in the barn this year, and that way we don't have to spend that money again next year. We'll just leave it right there. We'll know precisely where it's at. At some point in time, the banker is going to show up at your farm and tell you you are a moron. You're an idiot. Like, you, everything you could have had for revenue, you managed to leave it in the barn. And by the way, uh, that ain't your seed because we supplied it. We gave you the money so that you could buy it. It's not even yours. You need to get out there and get to planting if you expect to have any kind of harvest. Matthew chapter 11, excuse me, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaking here in parables, he says, In verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And then he who had the five talents went and traded them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who received the two gained two more also. But he who received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. In verse 20, So he who received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you've delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And he also 
who had received the two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seeds. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Now look, here you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, when Jesus brought a message, he was no joke. What he wants to make abundantly clear is, first of all, note with me, where the talent came from. It, it wasn't from their own efforts and works. The talent came from the master. It was all the masters in the first place. But also, note with me, he gave to each as it was according to his own ability. He gave them what they were able, what they were capable of handling. And so the expectation was on them to then go out and do something with it. As he gave them opportunities, he gave them talent, they were to go out and work with what the Lord had given them. They weren't responsible for what the other guy had. The guy with five was responsible for his five. The guy with two, with his two, and the same with the one who only had one. He was responsible for what he did with that talent. So I'm not responsible for what God gave you. That's the bottom line. I'm only responsible for what he gave me and what he put in my charge. But here's the beautiful thing. As we are responsible with what the Lord gave us, He He then rewards us based upon how we invested what He gave us in the first place. Isn't that unbelievable? He complimented them on what they did with what He'd already given them in the first place. And He says to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now you get to enter into the joy of the Lord. The promise is also, as we're faithful with these things, it, it's that He's going to give us the next thing. And the next thing, and the next thing, and this is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. And so he gives us these compliments, but we are responsible to get our butt out of the barn, to take the seed and sow and use the thing the Lord has given us, be it time or money or talent or resources. Now, as he continues here in verse 12, for the administration... Oh, lost my place. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. And so as we give, uh, thanksgiving abounds. As we take this opportunity to give, first of all, I want you to know, um, giving is actually an act of worship. I never understood that. Grew up in church my whole life. Was told this is what we're supposed to do. And, and the plague got passed, and I usually gave because the guy next to me gave something. And, and it was always, it felt like being coerced. Or, or the, the big campaign happened, and I felt like I had to do my part, and I had to give. And man, was I ticked off every time I wrote a check. I was the worst and, until Jesus really changed my heart. And then I realized it was an act of worship. 
And so I, I remember a time distinctly being in Missouri. And I don't know if, if any of you own your own business, but, but here's how it works when you own your own business. Um, sometimes you got a lot, and sometimes you don't got nothing. And so it just depended on which month it was. And I remember after a season of, of doing really well and, and getting to worship Jesus in this way, um, things dried up. And, and I'm not a math genius, but uh, 10% of zero is, is zero. And so there was a, a season where I wasn't able to give. And, and for a guy who grew up so grumpy about giving, so stingy about it, to not be able to, the, the mourning and the hurt, because I wasn't able to praise God in that way. It, I wasn't able to worship Him in that way. And so no different than us worshiping Him in song, the sacrifice of our lips that we get to do, we get the chance to worship Him with our wallet. But the beautiful thing is, as we get to thank Him in that way, and we give, on the other side, there's, there are people that receive. And you know what they do? They thank God. So thanksgiving actually abounds. Praise actually abounds as our provision is given and as it is received. Verse 13, While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Not only does our giving produce praise, it also produces prayer. Imagine if somebody gives to you or they bless you in some way, what do you want to do? You want to thank them? How about you? You want to pray for them, right? You want to praise them any way you can. Thank you, I'm going to pray for you. Many of you, you may not want prayer, but I, but I will take it. If you want to pray for somebody, like, I don't know who to pray for, pray for me. Keep it on. I'll take all you want to throw out there. And many of us are that way. We all like to be prayed for, don't we? Doesn't it feel good to have somebody just pray for us? And this is what Paul's encouraging them in. As you give, they're going to pray for you. Thanksgiving is going to abound and praise is going to go to the Father. Now, finally, as we conclude, thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. As we wrap up this two chapters of giving, I know many of you are like, thank you, Jesus. As we wrap up two chapters about giving, here's how Paul wraps it up. He says, when you think about giving, think about how much has been given by God the Father. And when you go back to that verse you learned in Bible school, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The thing that meant everything to him, he gave it willingly, freely, because he so loved the world. You guys are the world. The, the world is all out there. He loves the world so much that he gave his only son. And the son gave his life willingly for us. This is why when Paul was in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says this, For the love of Christ compels us. How are we compelled? How are we encouraged? It's the love of Christ. I shared with you back then, if you're doing things because of your love for Jesus, at some point in time, you're going to wear out. At some point in time, there's only so much love you can muster for Jesus. But if I'm doing things because of the love of Jesus, because of His great love for me, and I realize that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. But while I was at my absolute bottom of the barrel, He so loved me, He gave it all to me. That's the love of Christ. And that's compelling. That's so compelling that for a guy 
like the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, wrote half of our New Testament, nearly 13 of our 27 books Paul wrote. He was good with words. Now, after this morning, you're like, Paul used a lot of words. He, he could use a lot of words. But when he came down to this, he says this, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul says, I, I got no words. I got no words for what Jesus did. And that's saying a lot for a guy who used a lot of them. And so when we wrap all this up and we wonder, what does it look like as a New Testament Christian then for us to give? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Here's what I would leave you with. What is the purpose in your heart? What has he stirred your heart about? Whether it's your time or your resources or your talents, like what, what has he moved on your heart about? And then as he moves on your heart, the second piece is important. Can you do it hilariously? Can you do it with that little bit of whoo in your step? I mean, just give him a little thank you, Jesus. Whoo, you're so good. Can you do it in that way? Because that's the heart position he wants you to do it from. And then finally and lastly, as we do that, as we give hilariously, here's what takes place. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter says to the church there, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. When you talk about his blessings, what he has promised to do is multiply peace. I've got the opportunity to hang out with some very wealthy people in my life and in my career. I mean, with money that they don't know how to spend. But without exception, when you get them to really be real with you, uh, they would all say, man, if I could just buy some peace. If I could just purchase some peace. That's what I really want. And yet, in Christ, what his promise is, as we get the opportunity to give to him, we get the chance to be blessed by him, his promise is not only to give us peace, but that that peace would be multiplied. Some 30, and some 60, and some 100 fold. So Father, we thank you, and we praise you for the opportunity to give, the opportunity to reflect upon giving, what it looks like as a New Testament believer. Thank you so much for the love of Christ that compels us. It, it, it gets us going from day to day, from place to place. We don't think we can go another day. The love of Christ, oh, how it compels us. We are so thankful to have the opportunity to give back to you just a portion of the talents and the resources and the abilities you have given to us. Lord, help us to be good stewards. Help us to be good with what you've given to us, Father. Lord, we thank you so much for the ways you've just blessed our socks off. May peace be multiplied in our families and in our workplaces and in this church. In Jesus' name.